Good morning and welcome to Clear Creek. This is what would typically be like our first service thanks to time change. Uh, how you doing? You awake? How many of you need a pillow? How many of you need some more caffeine? How many of you are not sure really what you need at this moment? Yeah, that's me. That's me. It's so good to see you. I'm Josh, one of the ministers here. If it's your first time, welcome. If it's your repeated time, we love you. We're so glad that you're part of our gathering. And for those at home, welcome. We love you wherever you are. Know that there's a God who loves you and desires a deep relationship with you. And I hope and pray that as we gather this morning, you'll see just a little bit more how much he loves you and is here for you. Now, if you have your Bibles, we've got a lot to do. Grab them. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We'll be there here in a moment. <clears throat> While you're turning, uh, just just quick show of hands. Uh, how many of you have a favorite allergy medicine? Anyone in here you've got like a go-to? How many of you would say I've got like more than one go-to? How many of you would say, you just open the medicine cabinet and just grab whatever's there during this time of year, right? This is the time of year of sneezes and uh, all sorts of stuff. It's great with our family. We, we're all sneezy and everything else because of allergies. And so we don't even touch each other right now because we're so gross. We just kind of, we like sort of high five our kids at night and that's about it, but uh, not quite. So we're going to dive in today in a text that is familiar to most But I think it's one that if we will peel the layer down just a little bit more, we might see something of who God is and and really who God wants to be for you. And I want to begin with this because just like this is a season of allergies, it's also almost a national pastime this time of year for Southerners to listen for the severe weather alerts. Have you noticed that? I mean, past few weeks, last night we had storms. I was met in my bed not once but twice by my daughter because of the sound. Or a few weeks ago, some of us, different friends, maybe you're hiding in your basement because you heard that a tornado was here. And, and so for a lot of us, this time of year, it's, I mean, it's just what we do. We listen. And then, and then if someone even uses the word weather, schools will be closed. Businesses will be shuttered. The thought of it. Now, if you say snow, I mean, it's like the end of days is here. And of course, at that point, then they flash over to the news reporter who's in the grocery store and he points to the shelf. No bread to be found. Then he points to the cartons and the crates where milk once were. No milk. Because we all know and we've been trained that if you hear storm, get bread and milk before you go home. Which, okay, come on. Really? Milk and bread. Like what recipe have you ever seen that says, take one gallon of milk and one loaf of bread? I mean, there's just nothing, so it makes no sense to me. But we do that because we know that bread is a staple of food and life. I mean, think about it. We even use that as a, uh, as a euphemism or as a slang term to describe other things we need. So we talk about someone being the bread winner. Or if you have lots of money, we talk about someone who's rolling in the dough. And we use these phrases because we understand fundamentally, as people have for centuries and millennia, that bread is essential to life. So woe to the one who forgets to pick up bread before the storm. To be the last person there and to have forgotten the bread and for the storms of life to come and for you to have the peanut butter and the jelly, but no bread. See, I think there's something even sadder and more terrifying. And it's that some of us may actually walk out of this room into the storms of life, but we won't carry bread with us into those places. 
And the text before us today is of a good God who says, I don't want you to face life without the essentials of life. And so we read in John chapter six, and I'm gonna invite you to stand with us because we're tired this morning. We're gonna wake up. Beginning in verse one, these are the words of scripture. It says, sometime after this, meaning after the previous events recorded in John, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, little, just little pin in it, guys. This is very important for what we're going to talk about next week. You do not want to miss what we're talking about next week because it is absolutely where some of you find yourselves. Can't tell you more. That's next week. So they cross over and a great crowd of people followed Jesus because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Now, notice he uses the word signs. That's his word for miracle. The other gospel writers were, use the word miracle for miracles, but John used the word sign, Simeon, because the sign points to something. The sign is not the point itself. He goes on. Then Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish festival of Passover was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, that's one of his apostles, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have just a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them all and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely... This is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Let's pray together. Father, meet us now. We pray that you give us what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, now there are only two miracles recorded in all four of the Gospels. Uh, do you know what they are? There are only two that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record for their unique audiences. Now, the first of these two uh, miracles that are in all four, it's obvious. It's Jesus' resurrection. I mean, that is the pinnacle of the story that all four of the gospel writers are telling, that when Jesus is killed, he does not stay dead. But on the third day, he rises. That's a miracle from God. But then the question is, well, what's the second one? What's the one? And maybe I would ask it this way. If you were choosing out of the life and ministry of Jesus, what miracle would you say has to be told? See, for me, I would say, man, it's got to be something like Lazarus coming back from the dead. I mean, that is an epic moment. Jesus there at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He's been dead for four days. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. I don't know if he, if he like walked, if he waddled, or if he like hopped because he's mummified with all of the wrappings around him. But what an amazing thing. Or Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead or, or one of the moments where maybe someone who couldn't see is given sight. Or Jesus walking on the water. 
What's interesting is not one of those is repeated in all four of the Gospels. The only other miracle repeated in all four is this one, which is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Which is such an amazing thought to me. It's like, why? Of all the things that you could talk about, why does this get top billing? It's like all the gospel writers are opening the family photo album of Jesus. And they're looking at all the photos and they're beginning to choose which ones they will include. Because remember, they're writing to specific audiences and they don't have infinite space. They're working off of a scroll and scrolls have limited space. So which one will we use? And you can see them say, well, this one. Thinking about their audience, what do they need to know about who God is, his character, what he wants for them, what stories would they include? And it's so funny to me that when they thought about their different audiences, they all independently agreed, this is one story everyone needs to know. There's something about this story that is so important that all audiences need to know. And I think we can kind of figure it out if we put ourselves in the shoes of the first century church. Okay, so let's just kind of go back in time for a moment here. By the time the four gospels are written, Jesus has been resurrected and it's been 35 to 60 years after. So Jesus is raised from the dead and then 35 to 60 years, they begin to write these four accounts. And you got to imagine what was the world like by the time the fourth gospel is written, John's account. It's in sometime the mid-90s AD, and the church has absolutely exploded. Tons of new people are following him, but it is a hard time to be a follower of Jesus. It is not an easy season to follow. The church is growing, but the 11 of the 12 apostles have been killed. John is the only one still living. Rome sacked Jerusalem. It is not an easy time to be a follower. And so Christians say, come follow Jesus. He's the way, the truth, the life. He is the one who gives life to you. You need him. But if you follow him, you may lose your family. They may disown you. Some of you know the pain of losing family and friends because you chose to live differently because of Jesus. And if you lose your family, you may also lose your income. After all, many of you, your, your family and your work are the same because you're a part of the family business. If your dad's a carpenter, you're a carpenter. If your dad's a winemaker, you're a winemaker. So if you lose your family, you lose your income, you lose your stability. And so the question on everyone's mind as they're stepping into this new relationship with Jesus is this one question. Is Jesus big enough? Is Jesus God enough? Is he savior and is he Lord enough to take care of me along the way? Can I trust that no matter what comes, Jesus is coming with me? How many of us know it's one thing to walk, it's another thing to walk with someone? Sometimes the path is not as scary if you're not walking the path alone. It's like as children, you see a dark room, you step into it, it terrifies you until your mom or your dad walk with you. And so the Christians are saying, will Jesus take care of me along the way? And this is the question that has been on our minds since the beginning of time. This is the question that the Israelites leaving Egyptian bondage wondered, will God take care of us? Yes, he took us out of slavery in Egypt, but is he big enough to bring us into the promised land? And see, I don't know about you, but I'll speak for me. I am often not so concerned about getting to heaven I'm just more concerned with getting to Thursday. Anyone else understand that one? 
right? Some of us in here, it's like, I'm not really worried about what happens when I die. I'm worried what happens next month. Some of you are saying, I've got a whole month and not enough money to get to the end of the month. Can God take care of me along the way? Some of you are saying, I'm in a marriage, but it doesn't feel like a marriage. Will God help me along the way? Some of you are waiting on news from your doctor and you're saying, I don't know what to expect. Will God help me? Will he take care of me along the way? And the resounding answer that all four gospel writers want you and me and everyone who reads these gospels to hear is this three-letter word, Y-E-S. Yes, Jesus can take care of you. He'll do it in surprising ways, but yes, Jesus can provide even in the scariest times. So Matthew, when he writes to his mostly Jewish literate group who knew the law, he says, yes, Jesus can take care of you. Mark, when he writes to the illiterate, biblically illiterate um, Greeks and Romans, he says to them, yes, this Jesus can take care of you. Luke The doctor who writes his detailed account of Jesus' life and ministry, writing to the upper echelons of the Roman Empire, says, Jesus can take care of you. And John, here at the end of the first century, to the dispersed Christians around the continent, wants them to know Jesus can take care of you along the way. And he gives us some clues. So, are you ready? I want you to see with me. We're going to dive into this. And John is going to start peeling down. He's going to do an archaeological dig into the Exodus story so you see something here. In fact, in this fourth sign, he's going to give us four clues from the Exodus. And you're going to have to kind of flip back and forth to get the full picture. So let's go to the next slide. I want you to see this. The first clue, number one. Notice it says Jesus teaches on a mountain. Now, Okay, Bible scholars, who in the Old Testament goes up on a mountain, gets some laws from God, and teaches the people of God? Who is that person? Charlton Heston, that's correct. Okay, Moses, right? So Jesus, ah, he's the new Moses. He's the one who's bringing us the new law to the new people of God, the new Israelite nation. Clue number two, notice and remember the story of bread or manna. Do you remember that story in Exodus? God liberates the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery, brings them out. They then go into the wilderness where it's hot and there's not a lot to eat. And the people are saying, you brought us out here to die. Don't you care? Don't you love me? Friends, by the way, have you ever been in a place where you just wondered, God, do you love me? Come on, can we be honest in church this morning? I've been in places where I've wondered, God, do you love me? Because if you did, why am I dealing with this? Don't you care? Won't you provide? We're going to starve to death. And so then God provides this beautiful gift, but they don't know what it is. It's manna. That's actually what the word means. What is it? It's this snow-like substance that ends up falling all over the rocks and plants and everything. So in the morning when the people wake up, they come out and they see all this white stuff. And they're like, what is it? Manna. Yeah, I know. I just asked that. What is it? Manna. Yeah. And they just kind of, and so what are they doing? God provides for them bread in the wilderness. And now Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, and he provides people who are hungry. He is now giving them the manna once again. Third point. Did you notice they call him the prophet? Not not a prophet, but the prophet. What prophet? The prophet that Moses prophesied would come about in Deuteronomy 18, 15. When he says these words, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet 
like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And I love how one scholar puts it. Here in this moment, this prophecy about this prophet who had come, and the people are going, oh, is this the prophet? Is, is this the one? One scholar pointed out, it's almost like Jesus and Moses are having a conversation across the millennia because Moses speaks of Jesus, and now the people speak back saying, is this the one? And you see... This parallel, the one who took care of them in the wilderness is now here again, but not as a cloud or a fire, but now in person. And then the fourth one, the biggest one. Did you see the biggest clue? Here's the biggest clue. When is this all taking place around? What festival is about to happen in the text? Go ahead and look. What do you got? I got a little one over here. Passover. Verse 3, it is the time of Passover. What was Passover? The people, before they leave Egypt, they are slaves. They can't get out. And God says, I'm about to do something and set you free forever. Egypt will never be a slave master again. I'm going to send the angel of death to kill the firstborn of all in the land. But you may be spared. How? If you take this lamb without blemish, Kill the lamb, use its blood over the doorpost. And when I come, I will pass over. You will not die because another has died for you. Is anyone getting hints of the gospel here? That Jesus is not simply a good man. He is the God man who is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John wants us to get the very clear point that yes, God can take care of you and me along the way. Now, how does he do it? Because this is the big question, isn't it? How? How, how, how? We want to know how. Give me the steps. How will God provide? Anyone else in here a how kind of person? Can I see some hand hows or how hands? Yeah. We want to know how God will provide, when he'll do it, the timeline, the time frame, and all the processes. I will trust you, God, if you tell me what you're going to do. By the way, that doesn't work with God and it doesn't work in marriage. Men, amen? Our wives and God moves in mysterious ways. I want you to see though how he does what he does. It's incredible and it's surprising. And frankly, if it's what I was designing, it's not how I would want it. If I were wanting God to provide, I would say, God, help me. And I would want the sky to like rip open. God, I need more money for the month and a bag of gold. Maybe I hear Scrooge McDuck talking. I don't know. But right there, that's the way I'd want it to go. Or maybe for some of you who are single, you're like, God, give me a wife. Give me a wife. Give me a wife. Yowza. That's the way it works, right? That's not how God often acts. I want you to see this because if you don't, you'll become frustrated and disappointed in the way your God provides. But notice what he does. First thing he says, he has in mind what he's going to do, but he doesn't just do a miracle. He turns to this guy named Philip, verse five. Philip, what are we gonna do? Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, who's Philip? Philip is one of Jesus' 12 apostles. And why does Jesus ask Philip? Well, if you go to Luke's account, we learn that Philip is from the area that they're in, in Bethsaida. They're right around Philip's stomping ground. So this would be like, Some of you, you're new to Chattanooga. You don't know where anything is unless you punch it into your phone, right? And then some of you, you've been here a decade. You still don't know where anything is because you're able to punch it into your phone. 
And then there's some of you though, man, you grew up here, you know the people, you know the places. And so we come to you for restaurant recommendations. We come to you for who to talk to about a mechanic or anything else because you know the people. So Jesus comes to Philip. He says, Philip, where are we gonna buy bread? And Philip goes, oh, I don't know. And he's like, there's not a Costco anywhere nearby. They haven't put one in yet. McDonald's, I mean, there's not enough of those. And he starts to do the math in his head. By the way, how many of you are my math people? Anyone in here, like, your love language is spreadsheets. Anyone else? Some of you, like, I mean, you know, you want to know how it's going to work. And so words like math or addition, subtraction, you're like, ooh, baby, yeah. This is Philip. He starts doing the math and then he, maybe he runs over even to Judas who held the money bag. Can you imagine that conversation? Hey, Judas, how much money do we have? Do we have much? He's like, oh, he looks in, he's like, oh, I thought we had more. And Judas like, yeah, I don't know where it went. I'm just, okay. And so he comes back to Jesus and he says these words to Jesus. It would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. In other words, Jesus, it's no possible way. We can't do this. And then, and then, notice the next thing that happens. Jesus doesn't fix the problem. Next, this other guy, another follower named Andrew then speaks up. And notice who Andrew is. It says he is Simon Peter's brother. And he spoke up and he says this. He says, well, here's this little boy, five loaves of barley bread, two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? Now, now here's something, just side, side point. Andrew is not mentioned often in scriptures. We don't have a book by Andrew. We don't have uh, a lot of stories about Andrew. But I want you to know something about Andrew. Andrew is a connector of people. It's Andrew who brings this little boy to Jesus, isn't it? By the way, do you know who else Andrew brought to Jesus earlier? His brother, Peter. Was that a big deal, church? Oh my, yeah. Some of you, you're not as visual or vocal as others in the church. And you think, well, well, maybe my role is not as significant. Hear me now, friend. You can be a connector. And I'm telling you, without Andrew, there would be no boy. There would be no snack. There wouldn't be no miracle. In other words, do not discount the gift God gives you to be a connector. The church needs that. But he says, where are we going to find more than just this? I mean, this is all we've got. And then we're told about this third little character, this peasant boy with barley loaves. You say, why do we say he's a peasant? Well, because it's barley loaves. Barley was the cheapest, most common of all the grains. In fact, it was so cheap and so common, it's what you would use to feed your livestock. You make little barley cakes and give it to your horse or to your peasant son. And by the way, when you hear the word loaf, what do you think of when you hear the word loaves? Doesn't it just sound like something fresh out of the oven? Maybe French bread, soft middle, little butter on that. Mm. That's not what this is. When it says loaves, I want you to think of crackers. This isn't something big. It's something small and basic. And those two fish, don't think fish, think sardines that have been pickled. Why? Because the Sea of Galilee is full of them. This is the meal. So you've got a little boy and his lunchable. And Jesus says, I can work with that. Isn't that great? And he takes it. He says, have everyone sit down. There's a lot of grass there. Why? Because it was in the springtime during Passover. He takes it. He thanks God. By the way, friend, may we be a people that thank God even for the smallest things we have. And he breaks it. And it's this moment where he's like, I can do something with what you have. You may want to write this down. The moment here tells us simply this, that God can do big things with small gifts. 
God can do big things with small gifts. Isn't it amazing how when we open our hands to God and say, here's what I have. I don't know how you or anyone can do anything with this. He says, you let me worry about that. You just open your hand. It is a physical impossibility for God to put something in a closed fist. But he's able to bless an open hand. And notice how God, through Jesus, through this moment, is bringing about feast for 5,000 plus people. It's through the work of other people. He uses those in there. He uses Philip. He uses Andrew. He uses a little no-name peasant boy to bring about his miracle. Why? Because God has always delighted in inviting you and me into the solution to our prayers. Have you ever thought about that sometimes the prayers you or I pray that God may say, that's a great prayer. Now I'm commissioning you and I will enable you to be the answer to the prayer you've just prayed. God, help my friend. They feel lonely. Okay, go visit. God, there's this conflict between these friends. Help them to resolve the conflict. Okay, go be a mediator. Isn't it amazing that God invites you and me into the story? He doesn't just say, watch me work. He says, come on in and let's do this together. Jesus can do great big things with small gifts. May we be a people who open our small gift hands to him and say, do what you want. It's all yours. I'm scared, but I trust you. And there's this beautiful moment as he breaks the bread, as he begins to disseminate it, we're told that 5,000 men were fed. Now, I want to say something real quick here, and I need to be real, real careful here. 5,000 men. I, ladies, don't, don't email me here, okay? Why does it say men? It's because in the first century, they focused on the heads of household, the men. It doesn't mean you don't matter. Doesn't mean, it just means that when they were counting, it's the heads of household. So if there are 5,000 men, how many people would there be? 10, 15, some scholars say up to 20,000 people could have been there receiving. Can you imagine what it would have been as a disciple taking the bread that's been broken and you come back and you pass one of the other apostles and you say, well, what, what, what trip is this for you? Well, this is my third. We, we just keep giving that out. Where is it coming from? I don't know. He just keeps breaking and giving, breaking and giving. Can you imagine the moment of being a part of that miracle? When God says, I can do great big things with small gifts this morning, um, I'm being a single parent this weekend because my wife is up in Nashville with her mom celebrating her 40th birthday and she's having a ball and the kids and I, we've been having a good time, but Sundays, I don't know if you know this, but Sundays are kind of busy for the preacher and we lost an hour of sleep last night. And so we've got two kids and they're awesome, but it's still, you know, how do we do all this? And so two of our dearest friends, the Coley's, they, they reached out like, Hey, why don't you let us take your kids to breakfast? It's like, it's like, oh no, I could never do that. I could never take advantage of your friendship like that. Small things, huge gift. What a blessing. I was thinking about this. You know, a lot of us, you feel like you can't do big things or you feel like the challenge you're facing is too big. And it's because you're focusing too much on yourself instead of what God is inviting you to open your hands to. My dad turned 71 this year and He's just, he's a super guy. He's always been just one of my best buds. And he's a big guy. And as a little kid, he always seemed so big and strong. I remember when I was six or seven years old, that was the first time that I ever saw dad or mom or anyone with a flat tire. I was with dad. And so pulled over, he pulls out the tire, gets the jack, 
little wrench. He gets everything out and, and he hands it to me. He says, here, why don't, why don't you untighten that nut? And I'm like, all right, I got this. I put it on, a little six, seven-year-old. And I'm just like, then I start standing on it and nothing. I mean, nothing, it's not budging. And then dad comes over and goes, hey, let's do it together. And he takes what at the time seemed like these huge hands and he puts them on there. And he takes my little hands and he puts them on top of his and this, together we start doing this. And I felt like a superhero. And we changed the tire. And it was this moment where it's like, oh, wow, look at what we've done. Make no mistake, my father did all of the work, but I got to be a part of it. Your daddy in heaven does all the work, but he invites you and me to be a part of it. 5,000 people, plus women, plus children. But there's one other reason why we're told 5,000. Here's why. 5,000 is the number of a Roman legion of soldiers. John is foreshadowing something that the people are about to try to do to Jesus. See, they see Jesus and they're like, we want what you've got, Jesus. Not because we want you, but because we want what you got. So I got an idea. Why don't we make Jesus king? After all, we are the size of a Roman legion. I think if we make Jesus king, we can gain momentum. We're up here in Galilee. As we move south towards Jerusalem, others will learn about our movement. People will join this war. We'll begin to fight back. And by the time we come to Jerusalem, we can take back our holy city and get rid of the Romans. But Jesus would not allow them to make him king because he would not be held hostage to their agenda for him. Make no mistake, Jesus will be crowned king. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. Philippians tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. But he will not be bent to our agenda. See, Jesus will take care of us along the way. Put this up. Jesus will take care of us along the way, but he will do it. Next slide here. But he will do it his way. He will do it along the way. Next slide, but he will do it his way. See, sometimes I come to Jesus and say, take care of me, Jesus. And I have a very specific way, but if I don't stay open to how he wants to work, I will miss out on his working. And so Jesus, in this moment, breaks the bread. And there's so much, that there's 12 basketfuls left over. Enough for each of the apostles to take home a doggy bag. Isn't that great news? But 12 is also the number for the people of Israel. It's a symbol that says there's enough for all of God's people. And so Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. There would come another night, just a few chapters later, where Jesus takes the bread and breaks it as well. And the next day he would be broken for us. To face the storm without bread. Jesus, broken. The bread of life, broken. The son of God broken so that you and I may not ever fear the storm, but that we would have what we need. Jesus is enough for the journey, friends. He's enough for you in this moment and he's enough to get you home. And I want you to consider what does it mean that Jesus is enough? Because in the push and pull of everyday life, we forget, we get desperate, we lose hope, we lose faith. And that's why Jesus gave us this reminder of bread and wine that we'll share here in a moment. That the same God who gave man in the wilderness and fed 5,000 is here today to take care of you. And I know some of you are brokenhearted because of what you've lost, the friends you've lost, the spouse you've lost, the relationships or the things you're facing. And you go, how can you say he'll take care of me with what I've lost? Friend, 
you're still here because he's taking care of you. And he will continue to. And so we prepare the room in these moments to receive the bread and the juice. Lord God, we thank you in Jesus Christ for this moment. Welcome us now to your table that we may see the bread broken and remember it. And that it is you who were broken for us. It's now us who are broken for our world. We pray this in your name. Amen.